A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And I hope you're listening to this episode as you drive over to the YU's farm sale tonight. Um, open, I think, from 8 o'clock till midnight or even later, 1 in the morning. And um, get all your books and farm that you need. And um, what's one correction from last, not correction, a clarification from uh, last episode? We talked about Rimenov and about Hirsch Mishurais of uh, Talmud of Remendela who became a Rebbe. So, a couple of listeners pointed out that he wasn't the only one who was a Gabai or attendant of, of a re- previous Rebbe to become a Tzaddik, also, because the famous uh, Reb Shail of Karastir was well known as the. Um, the Gabai of Tzvi Hirsch of Liska, of Hirsch of Liska, and and um, he even had his stamp. He, he his uh, the the official uh, stamp that he used. He called himself the Meshares or something like that of uh, the Gabai of the of Tzvi Hirsch of Liska. So he wasn't the only one. But you know there are differences between Reb Shaila and the story of Hirsch Meshares, and which I'm not going to get into now. But the idea is the same, so that's correct. But uh, different distinctions can be made. The the, the what I'm going to talk about tonight is a little bit about Munkach and Baruch Rabinovich. Before that, um, you know, Munkach is one of the places you sometimes visit on trips. Today it's in the Ukraine, and we have some upcoming tours. Um, some diverse tours actually uh, coming up. A little bit about uh, some of the tours coming up, just to get you guys excited for your own that we're all going to do together one day. Um, have a family uh, who wants to visit their family roots in Lithuania and Belarus and a little bit of Poland. We have, following that a few weeks later, we have a, a uh, yeshiva who wants to do um, start off in Poland and then end up in Czechoslovakia. Well, today it's two different countries, Czech Republic and Slovakia, Prague. And Poland very often gets in. I don't know, the fascination with Poland is is interesting. There's all kinds of countries to visit across Europe with loads of Jewish history. 
Poland does have a lot, and there's always the Holocaust aspect, which is strong there. The, you know, a lot of the camps are there, and Auschwitz and all that. And of course, you have Lezhensk and Krakow. So it seems to be uh, the most popular country to visit. I also have a shul that wants to go. We're still working out that itinerary. It's in a couple of months from now. But they want to go to um, Hungary and uh, Austria, Slovakia, Central Europe more. In that part, which is also an interesting route, you know, Budapest and Chassam Seifer and Bratislava and Vienna has loads of uh, interesting facets to it as well. So the tours get more and more interesting. There's more and more countries are getting involved and the Jews were everywhere in Europe. These tours are really interesting. So, you know, hope to to see uh, to see the, the different uh, parts of the Jewish story wherever we go. Back to Munkach, though, got sidetracked there. Um, the Baruch Rabinovich was, uh, was, is an interesting story. He was the son-in-law of the Minchas Alazar, of Chaim Alazar Shapiro, uh, of the Minchas Alazar, as he's known, of Munkach. And Munkach at that time, when the Minchas Alazar was alive, was in Czechoslovakia. And during the war, it's in Hungary. And today, it's in the Ukraine. Now, the actual town never really moved, but um the 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 border has changed today it's not even called munkach it's mukachevo or something like that and um in the southern south western part of the ukraine so the the question that i want to start with, with to get to the story of Baruch Rabinovich and munkach and his uh, abdication from the throne of munkach and his personal story is is the restoration and rebuilding actually of the different dynasties, the different courts of Hasidus after the war. In reality, when although we celebrate the rebuilding of of Hasidus, like we celebrate uh, and commemorate um, the rebuilding of much of the Jewish world after the war and following the destruction of the Holocaust, the reality is that most did not rebuild. The most were completely destroyed. Most of the Rebbes were killed. And 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 we tend to divide it into two parts. There's the rebbes that managed to escape or survive the war, and they were able to rebuild. And then there's the ones that were killed, and because there was no living rebbe or living descendant of the dynasty, and therefore those those branches of um, those courts disappeared and uh, you know were not rebuilt. But the truth is that is that it's a little more complicated than that because even though the ones who were killed, so pretty much the ones who the had a Rebbe killed uh, were not rebuilt, but on the other side of the equation, just the fact of a Rebbe's survival did not guarantee that the dynasty would flourish or rebuild. And there's many, many examples of that. And, you know, the Amshan of a Rebbe escapes through Shanghai and Amshan of today is not much of a big Hasidus. It was much bigger before the war. It was never huge, but it was definitely much bigger before the war. Same thing with Majitz, the Husyatna Rebbe, and a few other original Rebbe's like Sadi Ger, and um, and a couple of others also managed to escape during the 1930s to Israel, and um, not not much rebuilt from that. And you could go on and on and on with examples, but one of the most unique and in certain ways tragic stories is Munkach, which did rebuild. It exists, definitely is, uh, you know, a prominent Hasidus, but definitely 
never has really uh, recovered from its former glory. Before the war, it was one of the major Hasidists in Hungary, mostly thanks to the very dynamic and charismatic leadership of the Menchus Lazar. And it, 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 um, it hasn't attained, uh, maybe it still will, but it hasn't really attained that former glory, although it's, a, it's a, uh, an important uh, Hasidist uh, till this very day. So the story goes that, you know, this, uh, the Menchus Lazar of Munkach had uh, one and only daughter, Frima Chaya Rivka, or Chaya Frima Rivka, I remember the exact order of the three names, and she's the only child of the great Minchas Elazar, who's known for a lot of things, we spoke about him in a different episode, also for his extremist positions on almost everything, and he's out to choose who's going to be the son-in-law, the, the most chosen one of the entire Europe. Now, the Minchas Elazar considered himself, even though he was a Rebbe in Hungary, and later Czechoslovakia, um, he considered himself a Galicianer from Poland, and he was looking for a son-in-law from there. And he didn't even choose one from Galicia, he chose a son-in-law from Poland proper. Um, Rabinovich was the name of a very prominent Hasidic family, descendant from the Yid HaKadosh. And Baruch Rabinovich's father was the Parchevarov from Parchev, which is a, a small little town, not far from Lublin, and the roots of the Rabinoviches are in Biala. His father, this Parchev Rebbe's father, was Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak of Biala, the founder of the Biala dynasty. And what was unique about his this 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 Rebbe, the Rabbi Yaakov Yitzchak of Biala, was that he was one of the only Polish Rebbes to be a Kanoi, to be a zealot, to be an extremist, which was unique in Poland. The Kanoim were usually in Galicia and Hungary, in, in mainstream Poland, they were a little bit more moderate. And here, the Biala Rebbe was a big extremist about Zionism, about lots of other things, and and this fit uh, what exactly what the Menchus Elazar was looking for. And he chose him for his his grand. He chose this this Rebbe's grandson, the Parchev Rebbe's son, uh, Baruch, who was still who was a child at the time, uh, to be to be the son-in-law for his. Uh, to marry his daughter. And uh, they get engaged when he's basically a child, he's a young boy, and they, he comes to live in Munkach, and this is a long engagement, about seven or eight years, until they're ready to get married. Now, during that time, he becomes a close student of his future father-in-law, he even accompanies him on the Minchas Elazar's famous visit to Eretz Yisrael. And in 1933, they get married, and the audio, an audio from that uh, Wedding is part of the introduction to every Jewish history soundbites uh, um, episode. And um, when the Mechazelazer talks about keeping Shabbos, that's a famous wedding. And a few years later, when, when Rebaruch Rabinovich is at the grand old age of 22 years old, his father-in-law dies, Mechazelazer, and he takes over the Hasidus. Now, taking over the Munkatsha Hasidus, First of all, was a big Hasidus, becoming a rebbe of a large court. It also means he becomes the rabbi, the town rabbi of Munkach. The Menchus Elazar was large shoes to fill. He was a huge paisik. He was a leader. It also means that he was taking over the Darchei Tshuva Yeshiva, which was a yeshiva in Munkach that the Menchus Elazar had founded, named after his father. And it means he's taking on three positions, big positions. He's a young man. And he doesn't even get to solidify the positions when the war breaks out. And to make things worse is that since he had come from Parchev, 
he was a Polish citizen, even though he was a rebbe in Hungary. So now he's deported as a foreign citizen, and he's deported along with many foreign citizens from Hungary, and he's in sent in ready in the beginning of the war to um, Nazi-controlled territory. And what happens is that he's sent to a place called Kamenitz Podolsky, which is today also in the Ukraine, where ultimately one of the first uh, massacres, first mass murders of the Jews of the Holocaust takes place there in the summer of 1941. It becomes a famous massacre in Holocaust historiography because it, it signified the first mass murder, and it's very often studied to understand why the Nazis murdered the Jews there, talking about, you know, many thousands. And uh, by miracle, he somehow escapes there in a daring escape and with uh, some of his own initiative and also a lot of miracles. And he manages to get away and get out and get back to Hungary. Um, and he gets he escapes to Budapest. And he remains there for the next couple of years. Uh, during his time in Budapest, he's very active in rescue work. He helps many refugees and he helps with forging papers and getting foreign passports and border crossings. He meets at some point with the with the foreign minister of Hungary to to convinces him to overlook border crossings of of and he convinces them that it, about non Jewish Poles to overlook if they're uh, crossing over the border uh, non if non Jewish Polish refugees from uh, occupied Nazi occupied Poland are crossing the border they should overlook it and then he gets uh, Jews to to uh, and he convinces or he sends a message to Jewish refugees that they should try to get passports that certify that they're non-Jews. This way they won't get stuck as Jews. Either way, the whole operation of crossing Jews over the border um, from Poland into Hungary, helping those refugees. In fact, even before he gets to Budapest, when he's still a young rabbi in Hungary at the beginning of the war, before he gets deported even as a Polish citizen, there's a letter that he sent to the governor or some sort of government official to, of Santo Domingo in the Caribbean, or San Domingo, however you pronounce that uh, island in the Caribbean, to allow several hundred Jewish refugee families to get into the country, to try to help them get in. And he was involved in rescue work when he was still in Munkach at the beginning of the war. He continues that and really expands his activities during the time that he's in Budapest. Now think about the context here. He's in Budapest as a refugee. He had barely escaped with his life from one of the largest and terrible massacres, the first major massacre of the Holocaust in Kamenetz Podolsky. He barely escapes by the skin of his teeth. His wife is already suffering from illness, which she would eventually die from a couple of years later. Um, he's taking care of five children, young children. Again, he's in his 20s. He had gotten married less than 10 years before. At the age of twenty, at the you know, at a very young age, at like uh, eighteen or something like that, and now he's in his mid twenties, and he's running this whole rescue operation at the same time. Um, so this is, I mean, it's 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 mind blowing. And what's really struck me most about his story, and the story is usually presented as as a story about Munkach and about the dynasty and about ideology and anti-Zionism, pro-Zionism, which we'll get into, and how he 
has a somewhat of a, a midlife crisis in that regard. But it's really, first and foremost, a human story. It's a story about a family, about a person, about a father and his children. And not only is it a human story, but it's, it's a story about someone who is very young when all these amazing and powerful and upheavals and events were overtaking his life. And it reminded me, I was um, reading a few years ago, uh, the book about, in general history actually, about the 14th century, where Barbara Tuckman uh, called A Distant Mirror, which is a fascinating book. And she's describing a lot, most of the chapters of the book deal with the different battles and developments of the Hundred Year War, which was a lot more than 100 years. And, and, uh, and what struck me most was that these kings of France and generals of France and England are very often young, like 14, 15, 17, and it's, and it's wild. It's, it's like incredible that it gets lost in the bigger story of history, but these people are young kids. And, that, and I, that's what reminded me of now when I'm, you know, looking into the story of, uh, of Rebarch Rabinovich is really struck me as how young he is when this all happens. And he like lead, you know, faces all these challenges at, uh, at this age. So by in 1944, in March 1944, literally days before the Nazis invade Hungary, he's able to escape Hungary and make it to Israel, Palestine. And before he leaves, he speaks to, uh, makes a, gives a speech to a packed house in, in, uh, in the great synagogue of Budapest. And he, he gives a fiery speech and he says, everyone should try to get out of here and get to Israel if you could and uh, get visas, try to do anything you can. He, a few days later, he even issues a warning that they should rise up in arms, they should arm themselves, they should get ready to defend themselves. A very, very panicky and very you know, ominous and warning. It's very interesting. There were three, or probably more, there were three big Rebbes who left Hungary in 1944, two of whom gave speeches. In January, two months before he left, 1944, the Belzareb left Hungary, left Budapest, and Ermatch of Bilgarai, his brother, gave a speech, which there was an earlier Jewish History Soundbites episode about, and that became a speech, an epic speech, a controversial speech. He seemed to have been calming them down and maybe even making a promise that things would be okay, which he couldn't have known otherwise at the time. No one knew that the Nazis were going to invade. Then you have, in June 1944, the Satmar left Budapest after he had been in Cluj, or Kloisenberg, um, and where he had escaped to from Satmar to try to cross the border into Romania. Um, so he, he um, came on the Kastner train from Cluj to Budapest, and at the end of June, June 30th even, um, he leaves Budapest and the train heads to Bergen-Belsen. Um, and he doesn't give any speech. He's part of the Kastner train. So there's no speech from the Satmarev. I don't even know if he had the opportunity to give any. You know, it was part of this train and it was just passing through Budapest. It wasn't really part of the community. And you had the Belzareb's brother giving a speech. And then you had this young Munkachareb who gives somewhat of a rebellious speech, and he's the Minchas Elazar's son-in-law, and no one knows about the transformation, maybe he doesn't even know about the transformation that he's about to have after the war is over, and he says, everyone get out of here, go to Israel, and then a few days later he issues a call to defend themselves, it was like a, a very 
different kind of message that he's trying to convey, which is which is interesting. Now, he he makes it to Israel, and he's very shaken from the Holocaust and what he's been through. And then he's hit by the next thing. In April 1945, basically a year later, it's the last days of World War II. The war is finally over, and his wife succumbs to tuberculosis, and she dies. In fact, on my Harazesim tours, when I bring groups and families to Harazesim, we go to Kibbutz Adikim, which is a fascinating tour, and very diverse, a huge amount to, to visit and cover in such a place full, rich of history. So one of the grave sites that we sometimes go to is the Munkacher Rebetzin, the only daughter, the famous wedding, the wedding, you know, what you see from the, the video clips of that wedding, the Kala Chaya from Rivka, or from Chaya Rivka, and she's buried there in, in Harazesim, um, and um, and she's, Rebaruch HaManavich at this time is barely 30 years old. She's a couple of years younger. She's in her 20s still, dies very young, leaves behind five little children after he had just survived with his family intact from the war. Now his wife is gone, which is his connection to the Minchas Elazar, his father-in-law. And he's completely shaken and goes through, um, again, he's a young young. A widower now with a family after what he'd been through and now he makes his next move he tries to become the chief rabbi of the Rabbanut in Tel Aviv the Rabbanut was not excited to appoint him because he's the son of the Menchus Elazar and the rest of the world was shocked by the move what? like the son of the Menchus Elazar is now becoming Zionist what's happening? what's going on? He's also a mile at this time, and one of the brises he did while he was in Eretz Yisrael for this short time was of the newly arrived, another escapee from the war, the, the Imre Chaim of Vizhnitz, his son, the Yeshuas Maisha, who has just passed away a couple of years ago, Ramesha Hager of Vizhnitz, had escaped from Grosvardian in Hungary across into Romania, and from there to Israel, ahead of his father, the Imre Chaim hadn't yet arrived, and in Israel, he, his wife gave birth to a son, Rabbi Yisrael Hager, who's currently the Vizhnitzer Rebbe. And the male for the current Vizhnitzer Rebbe by his bris was Rabbaruch Rabinovich, interestingly enough. Um, so at this point, Rabbaruch Rabinovich abdicates the throne. He leaves Monkach. He gives up on being the Rebbe. Whatever's left, I mean, there's almost nothing left of the Hasidus altogether after the war. And he goes to Brazil, to Sao Paulo, and he becomes a rabbi there. And during the time of his rabbi, he, re, he had remarried subsequently, and he had kids, a second family, and he brings his children from his first wife along with him to Brazil. And in the atmosphere of Brazil, he went through a complete transformation. He's not the Munkacher Rebbe anymore. And uh, perhaps this transformation was already years in the making. It's hard to know. And it's hard to, you know, it's hard to know exactly what, what he was doing and why he did it. But we know what, what it was. You know, he all of a sudden became um, a rabbi in Brazil. He lived a much more regular, subdued lifestyle. He drove his own car, and 
He even learned how to fix his own car when it broke down. He helped his wife in the kitchen with the dishes. He tried to do Kirov and promote Jewish life and values. He was, like I said, he was a male, so he was able to serve in that function also. His kids went to the local public schools um, because there was no, you know, yeshivas there, and he gave them the private tutoring at home of, in, in learning and Tyra and everything like that. And um, when he looked for rabbinical materials to inspire his congregation in Brazil, he didn't write to any uh, Hungarian Hasidic Rebbe's. He wrote to Rabbi Leo Jung in uh, in Manhattan. The then one of the leaders of Agudis Yisrael, but also remembered in history as one of the leaders of modern orthodoxy in America, and a fascinating character with so much to say about, and hopefully we'll get around to speaking about him one day. But he was a, a great thinker and a great religious leader, and Rebarch Rabinovich, as a young Rav in Brazil, wrote to him to help him with materials. That's who he looked to. You know, and he's he's from a yucky German background. You know, so he's he's heading... In that direction, he does send his kids to learn in Tells. There was a Tells fundraiser who ended up in his home in Brazil. And he said, why don't you send your kids to Tells? They'll be in a real yeshiva. And it was when one of his sons was in Tells that some of the elder Munkatsher Hasidim in New York decided to convince him to become the Munkatsher Rebbe. And he's actually the current Munkatsher Rebbe. So... The Munkach Hasidus at the, by this time was, was falling apart. There's no Rebbe. The Rebbe had left. He became a rabbi in Brazil. He eventually leaves Brazil, moves back to Israel. But when he moves back to Israel, what does he do? He joins the Rab- Rabbanut. He joins the Rabbanut establishment and becomes the chief rabbi of Chulon. Here, that's like a, an outright statement of becoming almost a full-fledged Zionist when he retires from the Rabbanut of Chulon and he opens a shul in Petach Tikva at the end of his life. He, the shul in Petach Tikva, it says Howl on Yom Atzmaut. So he fully joins the Zionist establishment. That's, that's the path that he took. Uh, you know, that was the subsequent events and the transformation that he went through as a result of his experiences. But in fact, when he became the rabbi in Chulon, that wasn't without controversy. This is someone who unfortunately suffered from controversy and, and uh, tragedy at almost every step, step he took in his life. He, there was a Litvisher rabbi, his name was Rabbi David Wine, whose brother, Velvel Wine, um, was, is the father of Rabbi Beryl Wine. So talking about Rabbi Beryl Wine, Rabbi Beryl Wine's uncle. So this uh, Rabbi David Wine learned in Slabatka by the altar, and he came to learn in Hebron, followed the Slabatka to Hebron, and he became a rabbi in Chulon. And he thought he was the chief rabbi of Chulon. And here this Hungarian Munkacher rabbi from Brazil decides that he's the chief rabbi of Cholon. They go to Dintaira. So to add to all his other issues, he has this Dintaira with with another rabbi wine about who should become the chief rabbi of Cholon. That's also an interesting uh, chapter in his career. So the the um, the what goes on is that his his son in the meantime is taken by some of the elder Hasidim in Munkach who want to restore the Hasidists, which had basically fallen apart. There's almost nothing left of it. Any remaining Hasidim had basically gone to Satmar or other Hungarian courts that still kept the ethos of the extremism of the Menchus Elazar, where in Munkach there was basically nothing left. And they decide to resurrect the Hasidists by using the grandson of the Menchus Elazar, who was now in America. And at the age, again, at the age of 22, a young young kid 
this grandson of the Menachas Elazar, becomes the new Munkacharebbe to try to bring this Hasidus back to life and to try to, and in the process he's got, he has to disown or disavow his father. So again, it's it's not just about the Munkach Hasidus here, it's a very human story and to a certain extent a human tragedy. They go to court, the, the, the ch- children, him and a couple of his siblings, against the father and it's a long, drawn-out legal battle about who owns the name Munkach and certain property that they owned and who can become the Rebbe. And a very sad story. The kids break off all relationship with the father. And in the 1980s, Rebar Chabanovich actually writes a heartbreaking will, which was became public just a couple of years ago. Um, and I read it, uh, you know, when, after it became public. It's, you could find it online. One of the most heart-wrenching documents that you could possibly ever read. Very sad, and that's like kind of like a tragic ending to the story about how he writes there, um, you know, my kids have rebelled against me, and they've, you know, brought me to court, and they all my pleas to them have fallen on deaf ears, and he goes through a whole long, um, you know, tirade about what his kids uh, have done to him, and, and his, uh, from his point of view and his perception, and then he ends off and he says, and therefore, um, writing as a will, um, to be binding that my kids shall not attend my Levaya. They shall not say Kaddish for me and they shall not ever visit my grave, which is, you know, a terribly sad and tragic thing. And just last year, the Munkach Rebbe actually visited Eretz Yisrael. He went up to Harazesim to his mother's grave, the daughter of the Menchus Elazar, but he did not go to Tel Aviv or Petach Tikva, I think Petach Tikva, where his father is buried, he did not go, and you know that's so that that continues till this very day. So that's a little bit about the somewhat sad story, uh, but also transformative and interesting story of Munkach and and uh, and uh, Rabaruch Rabinovich, and reflective of the struggles that it was for recovery after of a Hasidic dynasty and of uh, Rebbeism specifically after the tragedy of the Holocaust. So this was Yudhi Gabriel with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips. You can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites at iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at jsoundbites, and I hope you enjoy.